Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. We're talking this morning with Terry Steenbergen, the executive director of The Harbor, which started in the 70s as a small group of women with a phone line. The Harbor did start in 1976, November, I think, of 1976, which actually makes The Harbor the same age as I am. Um, and we did just start as a phone line uh, to help women who needed us. And we have gone through a lot of iterations over the last uh, 46 years. Um, and now, um, I mean, I guess, first of all, our mission is to provide advocacy, prevention, and support to promote self-determination and hope for survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking throughout Classic County. You know, one of the iterations that we have is the Women's Resource Center. We've expanded to provide resources uh, to anybody who needs our services, uh, so women, uh, men, non-binary folks, transgender folks. Um, so we are here uh, to support the whole community. Um, we do provide, um, as I mentioned, services to uh, survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking. Um, and those services are just a huge, wide variety of things. Like uh, survivors need tend to need a lot of things, right? We need, we we really need to connect people to a lot of different um, services. So you know, somebody who's leaving a domestic violence situation might need shelter. Um, they might need to work with law enforcement. They might need to get a restraining order or some other type of, type of protective order. So we can help people with that. Terry, if somebody is in a, in a situation now where they uh, of, of domestic violence or sexual abuse, um, how, how do they get in touch with you? How do they get involved with you? Uh, there's a couple of different ways people can reach out. So the, the easiest thing is to just call our 24-hour um, crisis line. And I think the, the name of the line is Miss misleading. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But the phone number there is 503-325-5735. Um, and again, that's a 24-hour line. So they will reach somebody uh, 24 hours a day. Um, and and the reason I say that the crisis line name is, is misleading is that people don't have to be in crisis to call us. Um, they can just, um, you know, wonder about their relationship, like think maybe that something doesn't seem quite right or something doesn't seem quite healthy and they have questions about it. Um, and so we can work with people around that. Or somebody might not want to leave, but they want to figure out how to stay safe or they want to figure out what next steps are, what options are out there. Uh, we can also help with that. So people don't need to be in crisis to call us. And in fact, I'd say most of our clients are not in crisis when they call. Um, so that's just something for people to know. Another way folks can get in touch with us is we do actually have a, a chat text option. So you can text that same phone number, 503-325-5735, um, or go to our website at harbornw.org. Uh, and there's a link for a chat on there where you can also reach an advocate. Well, when somebody does call you, who are they talking with? Do you, you know, your, that line is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do you have counselors on duty or how is that working? Uh, when they call, they reach an advocate. So advocates are uh, confidential advocates in Oregon. They go through a training specific to Oregon about um, how to provide advocacy. So advocacy is anywhere from emotional support to, and safety planning uh, to helping people access services like I was talking about before. So we're walking through how to fill out a restraining order or how to access um, food stamps or a variety of other things, depending on what people's needs are. Well, initially, there's the issue of getting out of the dangerous situation. And that's not always that easy because sometimes, uh, you know, a person's being very closely monitored when that kind of situation. So how do you, how do you work around that? 
Um, it is tricky. I mean, I think one of the things, right, about domestic violence is it isn't about power and control. And domestic violence relationships, um, a the abuser uh, does have a lot of control over what um, their partner is doing. So they either are monitored, they're not allowed to leave the house, or they uh, know exactly when they're supposed to be at work and how long it takes to get from their job to get home. And so if there's any variation in that, then, then there could be a problem. So it's not an easy thing. Um, I think, and that's one of the things that the pandemic really also highlighted is that it didn't get, you know, during the lockdown of the pandemic, it didn't give people that opportunity to get out and do the things that they sort of just need to do, right? People need to drop their kids off at school. People need to go grocery shopping. They need to go to doctor's appointments. Um, and so there are usually these opportunities to get out of the house um, normally uh, mm-hmm. that we have to work around sometimes. When somebody is in that kind of situation where home is dangerous, now one of the services you have is you do have temporary shelter for someone like that, right? Yes, we do. So this is like a um, a confidential location where you can house house people. Yep, uh, it is confidential. It's a small location uh, where we can house people temporarily. I mean, I think temporarily is becoming kind of a I don't know. Up, up for debate about what that really means, given the housing situation in Classic County right now, um, because we don't want, you know, if you take somebody out of their home, and put them in shelter, ideally, they have somewhere to go afterwards, right? So they, they have a plan, uh, and we can get them into a safer situation. And that has become increasingly difficult uh, with the amount of housing that's available, especially affordable housing that's available in Classic County. Um, because often people are like, well, they should just move out of town anyway. And it's like, you know, people have families and school and jobs. It's not that easy to just take off. So um, it is it is tricky. And, you know, our the ideal situation is people don't go back to their abusers. But the reality is that um, that does happen. And, and one of those reasons is because it's so hard to, it is so hard to move out of that situation. And so with, especially given the, the housing situation the way it is, it's hard for people to find a new place or figure out the next steps. And so we have a lot, you know, a lot of people will go back and that's not unusual. Um, well, if you feel you have no other choice, then right. a bad situation is your best choice. I, you depend a little bit on volunteers in your operation, don't you? Uh, we do. Uh, we don't normally house folks with volunteers. I mean, that would be that's an interesting idea. I think there's some some things that we would have to uh, liabilities on on the organization on us sure. uh, that we'd have to consider. Um, so when we don't have room and shelter, we often put people we can put people in hotels or motels temporarily, but those are obviously very temporary options. So, but we do. I mean, we are we actually have a volunteer training going on right now. Um, volunteers can help in a, a gazillion different ways. You know, we have. Uh, folks can provide childcare. Childcare is a really hard thing for survivors to get. Um, so we're looking for volunteers who can do that kind of work. We're looking for volunteers who are interested in maybe answering the phone or uh, hanging out in the office and helping out with stuff around here. I mean, we have a lot of things that people can do. So uh, if people want to help out and volunteer with the harbor, we are more than welcome. Uh, more than well, welcome that. I can see that somebody in that kind of situation, especially if they've been in, in it for a while and are feeling you know, really weakened and, and so on, would need a lot of help and guidance in getting out of it. So you're doing more than offering a sympathetic ear or temporary housing. You're doing a lot of a lot of counseling and guidance along the way. 
Yeah, so our folks are not trained counselors. I mean, uh, one goal that we have is actually to be able to raise some funds at some point to, to actually have a counselor on staff. Um, but um, advocates, so what if in the extreme situation where somebody leaves an abusive situation and moves into our shelter, uh, you know, we give people some time to just like sleep, right? <laughs> like they need to come down and just like, get comfortable and sleep and figure, you know, eat and do this, you know, get back to some normal state, which is really hard for somebody who's been um, with an abuser for a long time. Because as, you know, as you said, like people have, you know, if you're in a state of trauma constantly, that's a very difficult space to be in. And I think a lot of us now are more familiar with what that's like, right? With the pandemic, a lot of people really just felt trauma for like a whole year, right? Like didn't know what was gonna happen, like danger could have been around the corner. Like that kind of feeling just keeps you on edge all the time and it's exhausting and it just wears your body down. So we, we really wanna provide a space for people to get some rest and, and take care of themselves. And then, and then um, yeah, you know, we advocates provide a listening ear, but we also will help um, with all kinds of stuff. We will, you know, we'll take folks to self-sufficiency in order to get food stamps or we'll, help uh, people get a driver's license. Uh, we work with an organization in Portland called Finability that does online uh, financial training. So any financial education, how to create a budget, how to open a bank account, just like how to manage finances. That's something that a lot of, I mean, that's just something a lot of us just don't know how to do in general. Um, and folks who've been in abusive situations don't usually have control over their money. Um, in fact, very few of them do, 99% of the people in an abusive situation are also experiencing financial abuse. So, um, so we do provide a lot of these different opportunities. We work with folks on parenting. It's really hard to co-parent with a person who's been abusing you uh, when you still have to take care of your children together. Um, so we, we want to connect people to as many resources as we can. And then, of course, we, we work at the other social service agencies around town, um, like CCA, for example, to just connect people with those resources so they can find housing or they can find uh, transportation out of town or whatever else they need. I think that makes it pretty clear why it can be so hard to leave that kind of situation if you have no money and no place to go. Yeah. It's a huge leap to, 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 make, to make that move. You also uh, have a major concern along with domestic violence, uh, domestic abuse, with um, sexual assault. And that's another one of your focuses. Can you tell us about, about what's going on there? Yeah, so we do also provide services to sexual assault survivors. Um, I think sexual assault is, uh, is extremely prevalent in the United States. I think it's one in three women um, have experienced some sort of sexual violence in their lifetime, um, which is that's a staggeringly high number of people, um, but we don't, you know, we don't necessarily see those types of numbers because it's so hard for people um, to talk about. And um, there's a lot of shame and stigma still around being a survivor of sexual assault. Um, so it's, it's not something that people always feel comfortable bringing up or telling somebody about or reporting or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so we do provide those services for survivors. One, you know, one thing people like to do is just call us so that they have somebody to talk to. Um, but I think the most important thing after experiencing a sexual assault 
most sexual assaults uh, are experienced um, by somebody that is familiar to the survivor, somebody that they know. So friends, neighbors, somebody in their family, unfortunately. I mean, I think we have this like image of like the spooky guy in the in the parking lot attacking. And that is that is actually a pretty rare occasion. And so um, because the, because it's somebody that we know, um, it's, it makes it even harder to report. And then we're in a rural area where everybody knows each other. So then it's like you're telling somebody that somebody they know did something really awful. And that's sometimes hard for people to hear. So it's a complicated, it's, it can be complicated for people. And one of the things that we want to make sure uh, that we're doing especially when survivors call us and that we're doing, we're actually going to be doing a lot more outreach around this is, is making sure that people understand that it's never the survivor's fault. You know, they never, there's nothing you can do that makes it okay for somebody uh, to sexually assault you. It's like, there's no, there's no, you know, it doesn't matter what you're wearing or how much you had to drink. Um, so that is never okay. It's never the survivor's fault. And that's and not uncommon it, for that for that feeling to be there, right? That that I somehow bring this on. That I, you know, that that sort of doubt. Of, yeah, it's very common feeling because it's another thing also that's sort of ingrained in this. Like, what what did we do to make us unsafe? Right? Like, should I have gone in a different direction, or should I have carried a whistle with me, or should I have just not gone to that party? Right? It's like, what you know, how could I have changed the situation? So that is a very common feeling. So. We're always trying to make sure that people don't don't have those feelings. And then I think the other thing that's super important is that if somebody is sexually assaulted, it's really important to get healthcare. So anybody who experiences a sexual assault, regardless of who it is that assaults them, um, has the right uh, to get free healthcare. Um, you want a substantial grant, uh, as I understand it, to kind of help with that because that the kind of care, particularly for uh, uh, an assaulted or rape victim, is, is mm -hmm. hard to get in our in our rural area. It is, yeah. So as I mentioned before, um, everybody has the right to free um, healthcare immediately following a sexual assault. Um, so that healthcare includes if people are interested in possibly reporting to law enforcement and going that route, um, they can get a forensic exam and get evidence taken uh, within uh, three days of the assault. Or if they're not interested in that at all, a week following the assault, they have access to just a complete wellness check to make sure that their body is okay. Um, and, and that includes um, getting medications uh, to make sure that they don't get STIs and a variety of other things. And so, um, and, that, and that all of that is free. Um, which I think a lot of people also don't know. Um, and there is a, a certain type of nurse uh, that is trained to do that work, which is called a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, and they're just trained on how to provide that trauma-informed um, exam uh, to sexual assault survivors. And we actually uh, have a shortage here in Classic County. So um, what that means is that oftentimes when somebody goes to the emergency room, there is, there's no certified sexual assault nurse examiner there to do the exam. Um, and so either the survivor would have to wait till the next day or the day after that when there is somebody available to do that exam or um, go to Portland, which is, you know, an hour and 45 minutes away. Which is not far, but if you it's the middle of the night, maybe that's often when sexual assaults do happen. 
Um, or if you're going to go the next day and you have a job and you have kids, you know, just like going to Portland is not <laughs> like something right. that's as easy to just do. And you've right. just kind of undergone a, a traumatic experience as well. Yeah. Exactly. And, and a sexual assault exam can take anywhere from like two to six hours, depending on, um, you know, how much of the exam is happening or, or, or what the, what the situation is. So, so we're actually, uh, we did, we did just get this big grant. We're going to be working with the Astoria birth center, um, and, uh, training their midwives actually, uh, sexual assault nurse examiners. So one of the, one of the things around being a sexual assault nurse examiner is you have to learn how to do pelvic exams and the ins and outs of that. Um, and midwives are already, you know, trained in pelvic exams that's sort of, sure. that's what they do <laughs> so so we're one step closer there and the Astoria birth center is just a really great location it's, you know it's right there on the river it's a very comfy location they have all of their medical equipment is kind of hidden away so it's just a very homey space and so it's a much better space uh, to be treated for something like a sexual assault than the ER you know, the people at the ER are very capable of doing that work, but there's also gazillions of other things going on. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just not as uh, comfortable and, and, and calming um, as the birth center is. And then the birth center also has several Spanish-speaking staff, um, so we'll be able to provide um, Spanish-speaking clients with services, um, and they are also committed to providing services to any gender who experiences a sexual assault. Now, in a situation like that, uh, the the victim of the assault does really have control about how much is done in the exam and so on, how far they want to take that. And, you know, if it's obviously something that where there will be a criminal prosecution, you you go further with that than, than if that's not the person's intent. They can say no at any point that they don't want to do a part of that exam, right? Yeah, exactly. So the control is completely the survivors. They, you know, at the beginning, they could say, I want to do a friends exam and a wellness exam. I want to do all of the stuff. Um, and then at some point, they might decide that it's just too much for them and they can just stop the whole thing uh, right in the middle. Um, and I think the thing that's important for folks to know, right, is that like a lot of people in that moment, they just want to like be done. They want to go home, right? Um, and so um, people are worried about reporting and and all of all of the things. And so the other thing that's really great about the program with the birth center is that they will automatically also connect somebody with an advocate. Um, and advocates can tell them about the process. They can say, this is exactly what a forensic exam looks like. This is what the wellness exam looks like. Like they will, they will walk through the process with folks before they actually go through it. So they know what they're expecting. And any anytime you know what you're expecting, things are just easier for you, right? So advocates have all of that knowledge they can also walk through what it is like to report to the police and sort of what that will look like um and explain just like a lot of the details of, of how all of that works um and again if somebody doesn't know if they want to report to the police or not you can get a forensic exam um and and decide to report later so it's not just getting a forensic exam doesn't mean you're reporting it just means you want that evidence and then you can decide at any point either tomorrow or next year to actually report that to the police. So the third, the third client group that you, that you serve is uh, someone who is a victim of stalking. Um, that seems similar in some ways, but different in some ways. How, how, how do you do that? 
I think similarities, right, is a lot, there can be a lot of stalking happening around uh, people who have been in abusive situations uh, where the, their abuser is now sort of trying to keep track of them and, and stalking them. Um, or there are situations where a stranger will sort of, sort of suddenly glom onto somebody. Um, and so for, for stalking survivors, we can provide the same types of support depending on what the situation is like. Um, so again, we can um, help folks with protective orders. We can like walk through the process with them, help them fill it out. We'll go to the courthouse with survivors if they want us to help there um, and, and, and do that whole process. Um, we can figure out safety planning. So safety planning is, is one of the backbones of what advocates do. It's, it basically just like comes up with a plan for how to keep people safe, right? What it, what it sounds like. But I think, um, you know, it's like if you, for example, if, you just, if you're in an abusive situation or living with your abuser, how do you stay safe? How, how do you stay safe in that abusive situation? What, what are the things that you can do to keep yourself safe? And just like walking through that plan with somebody is really helpful. And the same with stalking. If somebody is stalking you and you have a stalking order, you know, that will go so far, but you also just want to plan for what you're going to do if that person suddenly shows up, or, or maybe the plan is to start taking different routes to school or, you know, picking, pick up time change or, you know, just, just having somebody to, to walk through what the, that plan will look like uh, is something that advocates can really help out with. Some people may be surprised uh, to know that the harbor also serves men. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? I mean, it was the Women's Resource Center uh, some time ago, and then it became the harbor, I think, in part because of that expansion of, of services and that understanding that the needs were not entirely gender-based. Gender so uh, can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, so we did change the name from the Women's Resource Center uh, to the harbor because we wanted people um, to recognize that we didn't only serve women. And even our shelter is... Um, not only for women. So we'll, we will house anybody in shelter. Um, and the reality is, is that everybody experience, everybody can experience uh, sexual or domestic violence. Um, it is not uncommon either for men. I think the statistic around sexual violence for men is one in nine or one in seven. I should know that. <laughs> um, but uh, it, you know, it's, it's still, it is something that affects um, everybody. Um, unfortunately, uh, folks in the transgender population do experience um, domestic and sexual violence at a slightly higher level um, than other people. Um, and so it's definitely, um, it's an issue that affects everybody. And we want to make sure that anybody who's in an abusive situation does get the services that they need. Um, I also wanted to mention, we do quite a bit of prevention work. You know, we, um, definitely are looking for a world where, where we actually break the cycle of violence, where we actually are able uh, to bring people into a world where they don't necessarily experience violence. Um, and so we do have a pretty substantial uh, sexual assault prevention program right now. Um, we are working in some capacity with all of the school districts in Classic County, um, mostly with um, high school students and some middle school students to just teach about consent and healthy relationships um, and what abuse looks like, um, because a lot of people also don't know that, you know, it's like teenagers, teenagers are complicated, as I'm sure you know, um, and there's a lot of stuff going on, and especially now with social media, and, you know, you would not believe when you walk into a room and ask a group of teenagers, like, how many of them have sent 
a naked picture of some part of their body to somebody else, so many of them will raise their hands. And it's just, it's astonishing, right? And so people get harassed over text message, people get harassed over social media. Um, they, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And, and people are like, oh, well, it's just social media. But like, as a teenager, when you're experiencing some sort of sexual abuse, even over social media, right, that leads to depression and, and suicidality and, and a lot of other things. So we, um, so we've been spending a lot of time uh, with youth uh, working on prevention education. We work with the Tug Point Job Corps Center, um, all of the school districts. Um, and then we also have some programming specifically centered around uh, queer questioning and trans youth, um, because that is definitely a population also that needs an enormous amount of support. So we work with the Q Center and also with some of the GSAs at the schools, uh, just to provide support and really let people know sort of like what their experiences are like and 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 what you know what healthy relationships should like look like. You know, the questions that we get are surprising really. It's just like, is it healthy for my partner to push me to have sex? And it's like, no, that's not that's not healthy. You should consent is when you say yes. <laughs> Well, while you're helping your clients and, and, and doing the services for people who, who are in need of those, that protection or those services, how can the community be helping you? What kinds of resources do you need from the community in which you work? Well, the easy answer is, you know, we're always looking for funding. <laughs> I mean, the reality is, right, is we are a nonprofit organization and as much as we do, you know, we did just get this big grant for a sexual assault, assault program, but, um, you know, my staff are, they all work really, really hard, and um, it is, it's tough work, you know, it's, it's, you sit all day listening to people uh, talk about their trauma, and, you know, and, and people are also going through their own trauma now after the pandemic, so, you know, as much as we can support staff, so I, I say, you know, funding, we're always looking for funding, because even, even though we do get these grants, right, it's like, it's never, it's never really enough to pay people what they deserve. Um, if you would like to volunteer, you can just send a, an email to our, best way is to email our info uh, box, so info at harbornw.org, um, and again, we need volunteers for everything. If you don't want to provide direct services, if you don't want to provide, like, direct advocacy support, um, we, you know, we can always use help with a lot of things. Um, we have like a little clothing closet that needs organizing. We have paperwork that needs organizing. Um, we, you know, people can help with fundraising. We do a lot of outreach events. Our prevention program can also always use volunteers. So there's a lot of ways people can get involved. Babysitting, our survivors at uh, shelter have pets. So if you like walking dogs, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that folks can do. So uh, yeah, please reach out if you're interested in volunteering. But looking forward, do you have any particular challenges or needs that you uh, that you're con you're concerned about dealing with? The housing situation is is very challenging. Um, I mean, funding is always an issue. I mean, I think as the sort of the pandemic brought on this onslaught of more cases, so the violence got a little bit more extreme than it used to be. Um, our clients deal with more complications around housing and childcare because Clatsop County, of course, is also a childcare desert. So there's just a lot of issues. And that also compounds on our staff who really feel the trauma that um, their clients are feeling and also just feel the frustration around not being able to get people what they need sometimes, right? It's like, 
when you have a client that is working really hard and doing all the right things, but just can't find a place to live and then goes back to their abuser because of that, it is so frustrating. Well, thank you to you and the Harbor for being there to provide that kind of help. So, Terry Steenbergen, thanks very much for being there and thank you for talking with us. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for having me on. And again, if you or somebody you know needs help uh, in any way, even if you're not even sure, please give us a call. And that number again is 503-325-5735. Thanks again for having me on. Thank you. We've been talking with Terry Steenbergen, the Executive Director of The Harbor. This is The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Thanks for listening.